You're listening to Spice Radio 1200 AM's The Morning Buzz, and we are speaking to Margaret Adovga, Managing Director at Resource Work Society. This week's topic is supply chains, energy transition, what Canada and its trading partners can offer each other and the rest of the world, plus what the abundance of stolen Canadian cars on roads, a content way, tells us about our export infrastructure. Margareta, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Karen. It's great to be here again. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has been in Indonesia this week, apparently working on advancing a trade deal with the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. What have you been hearing about progress on that front? The season for diplomacy is certainly here. The Prime Minister has indeed been in Jakarta. And in fact, I think he actually headed yesterday to Singapore for meetings there. Very shortly, just over the weekend, he'll be in New Delhi for the G20 summit, the first that India has hosted. And uh, this is a pretty interesting uh, time overall. But let me just say, uh, I can't believe that <laughs> September is already here. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a very, very long and busy summer. Um, and, yeah, he said some really interesting things um, uh, at an event recently uh, The Bloomberg reported on. I uh, quote, I don't think the idea of crossing our arms and turning our backs on any part of the world is something that is good for the Canadian economy. And there's an important uh, subtext to that. Uh, they've committed to, uh, between Canada and Indonesia, signing a bilateral trade agreement by the end of 2024. And uh, there's uh, apparently a plan in the works uh, to finalize another deal with EC and that association that you mentioned by 2025. Um, of course, him heading to New Delhi is uh, pretty significant. Uh, Canada has been seeking to broker for years and years a deal, but hasn't been a bump-free one. Uh, you know, the pandemic and some travel restrictions uh, from people coming from India, a little bit of retaliation by India was a good example, but that relationship, you know, isn't always uh, roses. But uh, let me explain why this matters. Right now, we're in the midst of what I would characterize as a fracturing of a global economic system that has for decades hinged on widespread cooperation with America and its allies by necessity. Empires are not easy to ignore, and it's been in the interest of countries like China to play ball for, for all of these years. Their economic uh, development has been contingent on product export to North America, and that isn't going away immediately, but change is certainly afoot. Uh, new global alliances are being forged, uh, BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, uh, China, uh, South Africa, many other countries that are joining BRICS at this point, uh, are signaling that they're looking for a new way to approach trade internationally. Uh, many of them have, over the last couple of decades, developed a substantial and robustly growing middle class. Um, so they don't just rely on the North America consumption market to, to drive their own uh, consumption uh, quality and their quality of life. Um, but on the immediate side, uh, China and you know some others too, but China in particular, are showing themselves to be temperamental trading partners. Uh, recently, we saw iPhones uh, getting banned uh, in uh, Chinese government and uh, state-owned firms, um, and you know that had an impact on Apple's share price. Uh, it's, it's a very interesting little case study um, that the cooperative nature. Uh, I think is on the decline. So that's forcing countries like Canada to look further afield. And a couple of years back, we signed a, a trade agreement um, to really expand our presence in Southeast Asia uh, and improve the free movement of goods back and forth. Um, and, of course, that's a trend that needs to continue to intensify. On the India side, uh, very significant to work something out. Uh, India is emerging as a modern superpower, uh, largest quickest-growing uh, population in the world in some contexts. 
uh, and of course hosting G20 for the first time. Um, there's a lot of talk about uh, India potentially being rebranded to Bharat. And uh, depending on who you talk to, that's either a controversy or, you know, a, a proud statement of muscular nationalism. Uh, but overall, I think it does symbolize overall this shifting strategic landscape. Uh, China's retreating from cooperative, uh, uh, you know, partnership uh, to, I think, progressively something in the vein of Putinism. So we need to be looking to countries like India and Indonesia and Singapore uh, and many others uh, in that part of the world in order to ensure that we can maintain a high quality of life for Canadians. Now, your organization, Resource Works, is especially interested in how Canadian natural resources can be fully leveraged as part of our country's economic future. Where does trade fit in? Sorry. Uh, simply put, it's, it's all essential. Uh, there's a reason that uh, natural resource projects remained operational during the pandemic. They are our country's bread and butter industries. They contribute a sizable chunk to our quality of life on a daily basis. And it's not just the products we use ourselves every day. You know, I'm calling you on a phone. It uh, has a lot of minerals in it. A huge amount of fossil fuels were utilized in the construction of this phone. Um, but it's also the products that we send overseas that translate to incomes for Canadians and revenues for our businesses and governments. And overall, Canada is often characterized as a small, open economy. We rely on the market to afford to buy things we can't produce. Uh, we're not such a large exporter that... You know, we can set prices or, you know, massively change things uh, by these decisions. Um, so we, we actually need the world, I think, a little bit more than the world needs us. Uh, but that's not to say that we don't have a lot to offer. We do. Uh, we're living in a time of climate change, uh, and that requires both domestic and international solutions. Uh, action on climate change is a global matter. And the work that we're doing right now on emissions reduction, particularly in industries that have conventionally been understood as the most emissions-intensive is really, really significant. Uh, there was recent news from our energy producers, uh, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers uh, in this country, um, that really put this into context. Uh, we've actually effectively decoupled our growth of emissions with our growth of production of energy products that the world needs. Uh, most of the world's economy still relies on demand for that. Uh, we need to be tapping into the Canadian innovation and environmental expertise that we have that enables us to produce clean products uh, for these growing economies, uh, Asia and even Africa. Um, another piece we need to do is to bolster our ties close to home and around the globe uh, to ensure that these products have a place to go. And then, of course, we need to ensure that the goods we are exporting uh, can continue to be produced, uh, they can continue to receive investment, and that boils down to competitiveness. Um, so if you look at the energy sector again, um, there's details coming in October from the federal government on what they see as a path forward on an emissions cap. Uh, there's some concern from industry that that could effectively translate to a cap on production, uh, which would be a concern because we rely on the steady export of energy, minerals, metals, uh, forest products, and many, many other goods uh, to ensure that uh, there are you know, continuous incomes coming in that can maintain standards of living that uh, we expect as North Americans. Um, so on all these fronts, diplomacy, uh, environmental performance and innovation, emissions reduction, um, and also our ability to maintain good capital formation in Canada, there's a lot more work we need to be doing with all the changing currents that are afoot. Uh, if we're not able to meaningfully respond and you know, uh, ch challenge uh, some of the ways that we do business as usual, we're not going to be able to maintain 
uh, that quality of life. And that's really a concern uh, on a variety of fronts. And I think as affordability concerns continue to get worse for Canadians, we really need to be paying attention to this on all fronts. Now, moving away from Asia for a second, this was quite the story. A record number of Canadian cars are making their way to Africa and the Middle East. Tell us more about that and what's going on. Yeah, you know, it'd be interesting if it was, uh, you know, Canadian manufactured cars uh, finding, uh, you know, ready, willing, uh, fully legal buyers. Uh, maybe there's a little bit of that happening, I'm not sure, but uh, the story that I'm talking about is, uh, according to a recent investigation, I think they looked at uh, Ghana uh, in the resale market there, uh, cars stolen from Canadians, uh, you, know, you, you can tell based on the vehicle registration number, uh, were actually in greater proportion uh, on sale there than cars stolen in America. Uh, so that's kind of an interesting one. Um, the head of the Canadian Financing and Leasing Association uh, recently spoke with CBC, and uh, he said, we've been become a global donor in stolen vehicles. And what uh, they're pointing to uh, from that perspective is a lack of enforcement, um, that we're not really investigating uh, organized crime that is uh, enabling the export of these goods, uh, these very, very illegal goods, um, you know, whether that's a force or investigation of uh, organized crime just operating in the country. Um, so coordination is obviously needed, but um, there's, you know, it, I, I found this to be an interesting story because uh, lately I've been thinking and hearing a lot about ports. Um, there's widespread concern, uh, you know, not just about <laughs> the movement of stolen goods uh, from uh, containers that uh, apparently are not getting uh, x-rayed uh, the way they should be as they are in the U.S., uh, but overall that uh, the reliability uh, the efficiency and the capacity of our trade infrastructure is also not keeping pace. Uh, and as a trading nation, we need to ensure that we are providing a high quality of service in those spaces. Uh, we need to keep the flow of investment going. Uh, and if we can't do that, then we're going to run into huge, huge trouble. Uh, affordability you know, may feel bad right now, but it could only get worse if we don't act quickly to massively, massively address the challenges that we're facing in the uh, export infrastructure side of it. So what can we do to fix that, and why is that important anyways? Well, you know, going back to the way our economy is structured, uh, we rely on consumers in countries around the world uh, believing that we are a stable and consistent uh, exporter uh, for the things that they need in order to keep their economies running. Um, those boil down to small business side decisions, uh, sometimes they're made by humans, sometimes they're made by a computer that, uh, you know, assesses timelines for shipping and things like that. You know, one example that uh, I've heard about recently is uh, when Canada and, you know, Western Canadian ports are chosen by exporters targeting the United States um, because it's a little bit you know, closer by sea in some cases, depending on how, uh, how you do the route. Um, and, you know, these products go by rail, they go by truck down to the United States. Uh, we actually benefit from a surplus of containers. So those shipping containers come to us uh, a little bit more affordably than if we were, you know, just you know, asking for them to, to come here and, and paying a little bit extra. Um, and while those shippers have assurances that there won't be unexpected delays due to things like unresolved labor issues, for example, um, then we get to benefit from having these containers a little bit cheaper, and then we can send our products and, you know, not take a big hit. Um, and then, of course, when uh, there are things like long strikes of, you know, of 
uh, agreement signed between organized labor and uh, government, uh, sorry, in the, in the ports uh, with government's uh, coordination and involvement, um, then we actually get the opposite of that. Uh, we pay more. Uh, people decide, well, you know, may as well just ship directly to Seattle or Los Angeles uh, instead of going to, to Vancouver or uh, Port of Prince Rupert. Um, so that has a real big impact. Um, and another one that I hear a lot about is adequate investment in this export infrastructure. So that can be the ports themselves, uh, ensuring that we're building them at the pace that we should be. Uh, and, of course, uh, getting any new large project built in this country takes a lot of time. Um, and, yeah, things, things like this, it could be roads, it could be bridges, uh, it could be rail infrastructure. Um, and on many metrics, uh, you know, we're fine-ish, but we're not keeping pace. And the timelines and the reliability are really taking a hit. Um, so these are urgent issues for all levels of government to work on. Uh, we need to continue to ba- balance local environmental impacts with these national-level concerns. Um, but I think this is a good reminder for us that we need to reverse course on some of these troubling trends that we're seeing. And if we don't, we're going to be in trouble. Mm. Margreta, thank you so much for your time. As always, we really appreciate it. You take care. Thanks so much.